I'm Ed Adams, and you're listening to the AFCA Podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome back to the AFCA Podcast. On this episode, we go behind the scenes of Netflix's new film, The Burial of Kojo. I'll explain more after the break. The AFCA Podcast is sponsored by Morgan Stanley Global Sports and Entertainment. The story of my childhood is a strange one. So strange that most people find it impossible to believe. That was a brief clip from The Burial of Kojo, an independent film that has critics buzzing around the world. It's also a New York Times critics pick and will be available for streaming on Netflix starting March 31st. The film is a story of two Guyanan brothers wrapped in an intricate dance of revenge, remorse, survival, and hope. This film is a visual spectacle full of fantasy, social commentary, and national pride. Now, The Burial of Kojo is the directorial debut of Samuel Blitz Bazawele, a.k.a. Blitz the Ambassador, a Guyanan artist in every sense of the word. Blitz has been speaking his truth for some time with four albums and four EPs under his belt. On top of that, he designs his own covers, directs his own music videos, and has created two short films, Native Son in 2011 and the Diasporatical Trilogia in 2016. Now, to make this film, to bring his vision to screens around the world, Blitz used his own money from his own music career and ran a Kickstarter campaign to raise the extra money to complete this film. The Burial of Kojo stars Joseph Otsiman, Kobina Amasan, Joe Ado, and Amake Abarisi. I had a chance to talk to Blitz recently to discuss his film and a Guyanan film scene. Hey, how you doing today, Blitz? I'm great. How are you? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. Well, first off, you know, thank you for being part of the Africa podcast. Thank you for having me. Right. So before we dive into it, tell us about what the burial of Kojo is about. Um, so the burial of Kojo is, is it's a uh, you know magical realist um, fable uh, that centers uh, around two brothers and their jagged past. Um, one of the brothers goes missing on a mining expedition, and his daughter must go on a magical um, adventure to rescue her father. So that's really what the story is about. Okay. And and what inspired you to create this project? Um, just, you know, first of all, the story, um, you know, about, you know, this little girl and her and her intuition and, 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 you know, her adventures of finding her father was something that I, I, um, I've always wanted to explore uh, cinematically. So that was, you know, the first. But then, of course, there's a lot of backdrop, you know, that, has to, that goes along with the film um, that relates to, you know, um, illegal mining. And, and I heard about a story about some miners being buried alive and that was quite. Um, that was that was that was a, a, a real big story when I was home, and so, you know, th- those things kind of culminated, and and uh, and I figured, you know, it, that, that was a story worth telling. 
Oh, okay. Um, I was, you know, I was thinking about it when I was reading the log line for this film and this this whole story about revenge. I mean, it almost feels biblical, and it just got me curious. Like, are you a spiritual person? Like, how does I mean, how does this like this conversation about like good and evil, or just kind of having that kind of spirituality, kind of fit into the work that you do, whether it's music or in film? Well, you know, I do I do have my my my. Uh spiritual beliefs and, and their personal, um, what I, what I, what, but however, I, I grew up in a, in a quite a Christian household, uh, when I was young. And, um, you know, so in terms of biblical references, my film is scattered with many, uh, the core of it, of course, you know, two brothers, um, you know, you know, the idea of brother turning against brother is very biblical. If we think about, um, back from Cain and Abel to Jacob and Esau and, and Joseph and his brothers, you know, that, that's, that's a very uh, foundational kind of conflict in, in as, as far as, you know, the, the human narrative goes. And I'm sure if you did, dug into most other spiritual and religious uh, beliefs, I mean, you will always find, um, you know, uh, uh, sibling rivalry as, as a core. Um, I, I mean, I'm sure those stories are as old as time, and and um, I think culturally as well. For me, um, it, it it was also significant for me to to um, kind of base this around a very familiar narrative. Okay, okay. Now I read that this is like the first local feature film financed, written, and directed by uh, people of Ghana. Um, can you talk to me about that experience, and more importantly, like what does it mean to be supporting uh, the film culture there in Ghana? Well, well yeah, it, it's uh, definitely one of the in most recent time. Um, I, I, you know, I, I'm pretty familiar with our film trajectory uh, as, a, as a country, and I know that in the '60s and '70s we had a strong um, industry that was growing. Um, what en ended up happening uh, over time was that, um, um, you know, our infrastructure eroded, um, also thanks to World Bank loans that um, forced us um, into what they call structural adjustment plans. We had to uh, sell off what they deemed... Um, um, uh, well, there was a word they used for it. Uh, I'm trying to remember it. Non-essential assets. That's what they called it. And uh, one of the casualties of that was our film corporation. It was deemed a non-essential asset by the World Bank and the IMF. And so the government ended up selling it off to the Malaysians as, as a means of, I don't know, um, satisfying the loan agreements. And, of course, that crippled our entire infrastructure because a lot of our film culture and our film infrastructure was was um, subsidized by this film corporation that was national. Um, so by the time we're coming in to make films, you know, it's become an ad hoc mishmash of, you know, whoever has a camera and um, it's, it's not as organized, you know. And um, so we, we, we kind of recognized that very early. And so one of the things about making the barrel of culture was not just hiring locally, but also investing in a film infrastructure that kind of still remains today. So I started a, uh, an organization called the African Film Society. And the African Film Society pretty much um, is about, you know, first of all, figuring out how we can preserve the films that we have. Second of all, trying to house as much of our intellectual assets 
um, and um, also expose as many Ghanaians and, uh, and folks across the continent to classic African cinema. Um, because I don't think that folks will understand my film without understanding that we've had a film culture that is close to 50 years old, and so many great films came out of that. And so, you know, we, we've, we've been working very hard at expanding that idea on the continent. Yeah, that's amazing, man. So you shot this film in four weeks, and that's, pretty, that's a pretty accelerated schedule. Talk to me about that experience, and what were some of the challenges you had and some of the lessons that you learned? Um, yeah, I, well, well, we did not have the money to go any longer. So that, <laughs> okay. was, the first, that was the first, you know, um, you know, thing that prohibited us from, from, from taking our time. It was really financial. Um, but, you know, the, you know, the thing is, you know, when you're working on the continent, you know, you're working with so much more than money. You're working with goodwill. You're working with people who care. You're working with people who are invested. The community is invested because they recognize that this is the first time something of this caliber is coming their way and it's going to represent them properly. So we were able to make this film in a way that I highly doubt that without you know, a couple million dollars, you know, anybody else wouldn't have been able to make this film. And um, it helps that, I, I, you know, I've, I've maintained a, con a direct connection to my homeland and I speak the languages. And so I, I was able to kind of maneuver as a local, which helps a lot. Um, the challenges were like the any challenges you will find on any film set especially when you're dealing with um, um, a cast and crew who um, don't work often, right? So, you know, it's elements of discipline, elements of education, elements of letting people understand the bigger picture. And um, that, was, that was hard work. Um, none of my actors had ever had to rehearse for a role, and we had close to eight months of rehearsal for this film. So you can imagine how much of a of a shock it was for them and how much they had to adjust their old kind of habits to kind of embody these roles. So it was quite significant the shifts that were happening. But I think overall, I mean we overcame and, and I think that we, we, we came up with a product that is, is very astute. Oh man. Eight months of, of rehearsals. I mean that in itself, I mean, that had to be kind of an ordeal, right? Because you're you're not only teaching, uh, working with them to try to expand on these characters, but you're also, you know, making sure that they're, they're true and identify with the stories, right? I mean, that's got to be kind of an interesting kind of endeavor. Well, that, was, that was a tough one, but again, it was all financial. So, like, we'll set a date and be like, in two months we're going to shoot, and then two months come around and we don't have money. So then it's like, well, <laughs> we can either go home or we can keep rehearsing. And I guess rehearsing was the better option. Gotcha. So that's how it just kept going. But the advantage was, you know, look, I used to tell my actors all the time, we're not acting, we're living. And that became our mantra throughout the production. And and so, I mean, it required a lot of time, and it required them to build trust amongst each other and amongst myself and the crew so that they understood that they could be vulnerable. And... Mm -hmm. And um, they will be supported on those journeys. And only time 
could have helped us congeal. I don't see any, because again, none of them were, you know, I mean, none of them were, you know, had worked on that level before. Um, and a few had been in theater, but, you know, it's a completely different ball game. And so it took them quite some time to kind of build that confidence. And, and it was good that we had that amount of time. In hindsight, uh, um, I recognize that that was a major advantage, um, that amount of time that we spent, because the, uh, the, my actors begun to embody the roles in ways in which there's no way they could have pulled it out in a month. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I was doing some research on you, and one of the things that kind of stuck out to me was this post you put on Twitter in December. And you said, four continents, five cities, all sold out. Yet this is the film they told me no one would want to see. I kind of wanted to, I was just curious about that. Why is it that people thought that people didn't want to see this film? Well, because it's it's the typical narrative, you know. It's, it's uh, there are always these um, preconceived notions as it re re relates to black and brown people creating images of, um, about themselves, right? The idea is that look, we you know, if it's not fitting a specific Euronormative structure, and you don't have the white savior, and you don't have elements that make white people comfortable, quote, unquote, you're not going to succeed. And I think that's folly. Listen, white people, like any people on this planet, are looking for truth, right? And, and I will be doing them no favors, and, and I'll be doing myself no favors to create work that centers them, because that's not why anybody shows up to a theater. I show up to watch an Asian film not be, because I'm looking for truth, and it, it'll be insane for them to make work that caters to me. You know, they, they need to make work that caters to them, and then I go over to that work, and I find truth in that work and how it relates to me. And so there's always these notions of, about African film, you know. It's like, you know, and so we kind of have created a, a pipeline that is, um, I call it the, the, you know, the cultural safari of cinema where nobody is really wanting to create these really immersive experiences, but they want these, like, vicarious kind of, um, you know, approach, you know, where it's like no, it, 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 um, it's often from, a, from a, a voyeuristic perspective, right? And making this film, that was not our intention. Our intention was to create the most immersive experience and force people to come over to where we are. And I guess, you know, a lot of people would just not, didn't believe that that was possible. And so a lot of folks that I went to try to raise money from were just not interested. Also, if you think about how many African films have been produced uh, on the continent as it relates to Hollywood, I mean, you know, a vast majority of them center around famine, war, you know, elements that the world has already kind of, you know, um, um, mapped for us, you know. Um, if you think about how long that propaganda has been pushed from the starving African babies with the flies on their faces, that's like a long-standing trope that has, that has gone on for so long to the point where even with the Internet and even with as much expansion and as much, 
uh, travel that is existing, people still feel like that is the majority. Uh, rep- that should be the the majority of representation that we have. And so, yeah, I mean, my film didn't center any of this stuff. So it was inevitable that I'll have those as the pushbacks. But I think we've also proven that, first of all, tr- truth is truth, irrespective of where it comes from. And the audience for the film has grown to include include so many people from multiple cultural backgrounds, black, white, Asian, you know, brown, you know, people from Arab. We just played in Luxor, you know, in, in Egypt, and it just was packed, watching people read Arab subtitles. So I'm, I'm saying that to say, look, man, truth is truth, and, and, and we never should, you know, curtail our truth, um, hoping to make other people comfortable, because, in fact, you do no one any favors. Oh, wow, man. That's that's a really good analogy of like how people, uh, especially when it comes to people of color or people of different nationalities, how we approach how we approach that vision of things. I mean, there's so many, uh, like you're saying, tropes and stereotypes that people do inherit and they push on to the there is a cultural bias is what we're talking about. Right. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I saw that, um, you know, going through your Twitter and stuff, (laughs) I did see that you got some um, some sage advice from Ryan Coogler and your film is actually being distributed by uh, Array, Ava DuVernay's uh, production company. Can you talk to me a little bit about working with these two kind of legendary, like, you know, people of color directors and producers? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, it kind of expands into a much bigger conversation, which is like how the continent and the diaspora connect. And, you know, in my musical kind of foray, like I've already been doing this diaspora work for a long time. My work has, 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 has included, you know, Afro-Brazilians, Afro-Americans, you know, Af- you know, folks in the Caribbean, folks on the continent. So that has already been my foray and my experience. And so coming into film, I mean, it, it kind of all, already made sense, you know, because look, as we're dispersed around this world, right, you know, as, as black people, you know, everyone has an advantage and a disadvantage based on where you are geographically. Look, black people in America stand on a media monopoly globally, right? That's why hip-hop music was so global, irrespective of whether it was, it, it was, it, it was possible or whether we even liked it. It was pervasive. It was everywhere. Everywhere we, you went, hip-hop existed because of the, of, the, of the media monopoly that, as a black person, you stand on in America, Right, so that's that's an advantage. Of course, within that in itself, is, you know, you're grappling with some of the disadvantages of who gets to control your image. So, uh, that's a separate conversation. But I'm saying because of that, of how we've evolved differently around around the world, we all have our strengths and we all have our weaknesses. And I've always seeked to work with my diaspora brothers and sisters in trying to kind of figure out the parts that I'm strong at and the parts that they're weak at and the parts that they're strong at and the parts that I'm weak at and figuring out how we can connect, you know, and I think, you know, it's 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 inevitable that folks like Ryan, folks like Ava, you know, they already are diaspora in their mindset. They already have a, a leaning towards the continent. And so I, I'm part of that conversation. Um, as far as specifically, I mean, Ryan was critical in, in uh, my edit, you know, he, he was very helpful in the notes he gave me that, that helped me have the film on the level it is now. Um, Ava has been an amazing just champion of, of, and it's not just me. I mean, 
I'm probably like the 10th continental African film that Ava's releasing um, out of the 22 that she's put out. So she's already, you know, she's already been pushing, you know, for for this for for this kind of inclusion. So I'm just fortunate to kind of, you know, be in line and 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 be on time uh, with it. But uh, it is an amazing time, and the more of us that are, uh, arrive in, in positions of power, you know, the more we send the ladder down, the more of us ascend quickly, and, and the more autonomous we can be. Oh, man. Okay. 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 So I was, you know, I was looking at some of your music videos, you know, and, and the trailer for, you know, the, the Burial Codrill, and I was thinking about something. I read that you were, you know, you're a visual artist, you know, you're a musician, and, and now, you know, feature filmmaker now. But one of the things I was thinking about, I was curious, um, as, as a visual artist, I know the storyboards have to be kind of important to you. And it, it made me think, like, for you, when you're creating, whether it's a music video or even when you're working on this film, Kojo, um, or even with your music, I mean, how important is the storyboard and which comes first? Is the story there or are the storyboards, those keyframes, those images you want to capture already in your mind? Yeah, that's a tough one, man. You know, it's like, I don't think I've ever thought about separation of medium, right? So the moment I get an idea, I'm probably seeing it in all mediums and forms, right? So I already know what kind of sound should be behind it. I already know visually what kind of framing you know, I already know how I'm going to write it because it's, you know, you know, you know, the the literary world is also a very artistic world that is relevant and significant to filmmaking. So, like, all those things kind of go together. So, like, when I think, when, you know, when I've thought about a scene or when I've thought about a piece of music, I've always thought visually, I've always thought sonically, I've always thought... You know, from a literary perspective, you know what I mean? And so, yeah, man, I've never really separated, you know, and sometimes one will come first, you know. I will have a clear vision of it visually, and then I'll kind of work backwards into kind of, you know, getting a sound. And I've written my albums like that sometimes. I'm like, I want to make a video, this kind of music video. What kind of song will go with this kind of scene? And then I build my music around that. And then sometimes it's the opposite. I have the music, and then I'm like, oh, yeah, this kind of visual will work. So there's never been a, a you know, a one way in which I've been able to um, mitigate my, my multiple streams. I'm always just like, where am I? What is the work? What's the medium that's coming to me first? I move with it and I expand with it, right? So that's it. But in the barrel of Kojo, yes, storyboards were critical. They they helped all of it. And it wasn't just me. It, it helped my entire team know that we were going to be working on something tangible, and that's very important when you're working with a team that's just um, that that that. Um, you know, it's pretty new to this. You have to give them reason to believe. But also, you know, listen, I drew all 600 frames of the film, which already tells everybody that I'm crazy, which is important <laughs> because, okay. you know, it's important because then they know that when they sign up for this film, if this guy could spend two months drawing each frame, 600 of them, He's not going to accept substandard, subpar work. And that's important. 
Right. And like some people came, saw the storyboards, and never came back again. What? Because they just because they just knew that they, they knew they couldn't pull it off, and that's good. I prefer that than like us to be midway, and then when I'm telling you, listen, we're about to burn a car, we're about to have these crazy sparks coming out of this random and people start tripping no no it's important that you see exactly how crazy we're about to get very early and then you can decide if you want to come on this crazy journey with us so i I think i think that was very important going into this film being as clear with my crew and cast letting them know that this is going to be dangerous work physically it's going to be mentally torturous and but if we come out of it guess what the world's going to see something they've never seen before, and it's happening. So I'm, I'm excited. And I'm excited for those who came, saw the storyboards, and stayed because they're, they're part of a phenomenal history that I don't even think any of us yet understand the significance and impact of this film yet. But, but I do know somewhere deep down everybody has a deep satisfaction. All right, that's awesome. So speaking of, so let's talk about the soundtrack for a minute. I mean, I feel that there is just as much of the imagination and scope of it as it is in the visuals of this film. Talk to me about the soundtrack and how it came to be. Listen, the soundtrack was probably one of the most difficult things done on this film. Yeah, it was difficult to shoot for sure, but the soundtrack was hard. I'll tell you why the soundtrack was hard. It was hard because I couldn't come up with any sounds while I was shooting, while I was editing. It wasn't until, because unlike when you're making an album, you know, you just go with your stream of consciousness, right? In this crazy zeitgeist that you're going to be going into, you can just kind of pick and choose rhythmically. Not with a film, though. A film is communicated directly by picture. And so if your picture um, uh, requires a specific rhythm, you're going to have to... Um, acquiesced to that, and that was the most hard thing I have ever done. It also didn't help that I only had, I think, five days on my visa to, to France, and my band is based in France, or at the time was, and so that was the only place I could get the score made. And so literally, in attempts to rush and submit this film to a film festival, I decided to take my five-day visa, fly to France, Without any sound, when I was getting on the plane, I had one melody. I had two days to, three days, sorry, to compose um, and have my arranger transcribe and embellish. I had two days to record, and I had to fly out of France the next day. Man, that's intense. So, yeah, bruh. It was crazy. You can imagine all all the levels of, and listen, I've never conducted a mini orchestra. I don't know none of that stuff, but I had to. And it's a miracle sometimes when I listen to how well the music fits with the film. I'm like, there is no way um, I was working alone. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it just, it just, just in terms of just basic time, it just wasn't plausible. You know, but I also knew that if I didn't get it in, then I'll end up with a film with no score, which is worse than a bad score. So I took my chances. Oh, and wow. um, yeah, man. And now, you know, the score is, is, is as celebrated. That's the film. And it comes out as well on March 31st. And I think people are going to love the soundscapes that we painted.
Yeah, I was listening to some of your stuff on SoundCloud, and it started making me think about like you know you 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 know you you know you uh, were living in Brooklyn, and and you can kind of hear that that kind of um, um, that Guyanan American connection, and I was just kind of curious about like how throughout all of your representations, whether it's your music videos, uh, your short films, and this feature film, and even your music your albums, like there is this kind of, you're always connected to your roots. And I just wanted to just from your opinion, like to talk to an audience, how do you explain why that's so important for people to understand why it's so important to stay connected? I mean, without the root, you have nothing. And for me, that, that's a huge element um, that um, a lot of us forget. Right. So like, you know, we, we have these journeys that we're so desperate to take you know, and I, and I think that um, what we don't realize is that the only thing that will keep you grounded, the only thing that will keep you um, uh, on that path will be how connected you are to the reason you left, you know. And for me, the reason I left Ghana was to be a representative. That's it. Otherwise, there's absolutely no point for me to leave the continent um, the reason I'm here is so that if, if somebody who has never been to the continent of Africa meets me, they should be able to have a sense. I should be able to give them an idea of what to expect, you know, and, and I, an idea also in terms of how we intend to mitigate our future. You know what I mean? And, and those things are important. And so for me, how can I do that without being whether physically connected or ideologically connected? Those things go hand in hand. So I've never, like, not been connected to the continent. I've always – it's actually the reason I do the work I do. Outside of that, my, my work has absolutely no purpose, you know? The work that I do is to, is representative. It's to make sure that we exist within this within this conversation of the humanities. And and the fact is that as as 1.2 billion people on the continent and probably another 500 million in the diaspora, it is insane that we still have to beg for representation. So we we amount to probably one third of this planet if you take black and brown people. And nobody that populous should be uh, uh, this lagging in representation and yet that's where we find ourselves so that's my work and so that's the that's the only answer i can give what is the significance of um Pebla mia more and the that telenovela that's featured in the film oh it's super significant i mean it it, it was uh it was also another another insane feat which i won't go too much into how it was made but you know we shot it ourselves in ghana which was a which was a a, a you know both a budgetary uh, uh, constraint, but also uh, um, I wanted to control kind of the narrative because it's a parallel narrative that runs concurrent with our film. But I also want to say that you know it, it, it was it was a lot of what's happening in the Burl of Kojo our conflicts. I mean, the film is is full of conflicts, but you know, a lot. One major conflict that exists in the film is the relationship of indigenous to foreign. Right, it's it's a it's a complete tug of war throughout the film. Whether it's with the the local mining population, with the foreign Chinese uh, incursion and land guards, whether it's um, the, the the gold miners and their their uh, Arab compatriots, who is more of the the purchaser of the gold, whether it's Puebla Miamor as as more of just a cultural incursion into this local population, it's always these cultures at, at odds. And what's happening consistently. In 
in this film is showing how we are always playing second fiddle to other cultures within our own context, right? So, 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 uh, Puebla Mi Amor is, is, a, is an example of, of that, but it's also a very culturally significant history of, of, of specifically Ghanaians. I don't know if it, it was, it was the same around the continent, but I do know that growing up, so much of our cues of love, relationships, um, um, beauty standards we're taking from, uh, the telenovelas we watched throughout the 90s, and, and that's very significant. Um, and so I made sure that that was relevant in the film. Okay. Well, Blitz, thank you so much for talking with me today. I really enjoyed this conversation. It's a big pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was Blitz the Ambassador talking about his film, The Burial of Kojo. His film is currently in limited release in theaters and is available on Netflix starting March the 31st. Now, I encourage you to follow this brother on Twitter for upcoming projects and definitely check out his music, including the motion picture soundtrack, which is available on SoundCloud. Now, if you'd like to know more about the Africa Film Society, you can visit africafilmsociety.org and also check out their Twitter feed for updates on projects, films, and news from the organization. And I'd be remiss not to mention Array, Ava DuVernay's production company that has champion films like The Burial of Kojo. And I also encourage you to follow Array and check out their impressive collection of films just like this and so many more. And that's our show. Thanks again to Blitz the Ambassador and his team for making this interview happen. And are you following us on social media? This is where you'll find things what I'm doing, what our president Gil Robertson is doing, and other members of Africa throughout the week and every day. Just visit us at TheAfka on Twitter and Afka on Instagram. And until next time, keep your head up.